0: The shipping industry has had to adapt rapidly since Vladimir Putin ordered his tanks across the Ukrainian frontier a year ago. Entire trade lanes have been rerouted. The most extensive set of sanctions in living memory has been hastily constructed and supercharged a dark fleet of opaque operations that have sprung up, forcing shipping to navigate an increasingly complex risk and compliance landscape. Meanwhile, The backbone of global trade, the seafarers, have once again had to accept increasing risk as the industry adjusts continuously to keep trade moving. In this special edition podcast, Lloyd's List's team of senior analysts are going to be joined by a cast of industry experts as they examine the lasting implications of the war in Ukraine for shipping. The daily news, of course, continues to evolve, but we're talking here about what's ahead for shipping, as the industry is forced to navigate new trading and legal obstacles. We're going to be talking about the insurance implications and the impact on markets and seafarers, but also the changing role of the globally recognised dark fleet, first identified by Lloyd's List at the vanguard of sanctions subversion. And that's where we're going to start. Because... The rise of the so-called Dark Fleet has been one of the major side effects of the war in Ukraine, and Russia's sanctions dodging is only getting more advanced, especially when it comes to selling the discounted oil that funds Mr Putin's war. Lloyd's List Intelligence has been tracking the development of the Dark Fleet from the start, and according to our investigations, the size of the Dark Fleet has more than doubled in the past two years, to now cover about 10% of global tankers trading internationally. The safety implications of that many ships effectively disappearing from mainstream scrutiny in terms of class, insurance and reputable flag state oversight is pretty self-evident. But there are longer term implications for shipping, not least in terms of the complexity of the risk and compliance landscape that is rapidly evolving in the wake of this rising subterfuge fleet.
1: What the war in Ukraine has led to is it's driven the expansion of this shadowy, Unregulated maritime fleet, which we have now at about 440 tankers.
0: That's Michelle Vesey Bachman, Lloyd's List Senior Analyst covering risk and compliance. But before I let her explain the significance of this trend, I think it's important that we define our terms here because the dark fleet is a pretty opaque term in itself.
1: Um, everyone's definition differs. So, in in terms of classification, What I determined for a dark fleet ship is if it's aged 15 years or over, anonymously owned so that the beneficial owner can't be traced, solely deployed in sanctioned oil trades, and engaged in one or more of the deceptive shipping practices outlined by the US State Department in guidance issued in May 2020. So that may include um, turning on and off its um, automatic identification signal, flag hopping, going from register to register. Um, complex, changing Byzantine corporate structures, spoofing of their vessel location, and also um, ship-to-ship transfers taking place in international waters. All of these activities is what I define as a a dark fleet vessel. Now, in terms of how the dark fleet is measured, it's now 10% of the global tanker fleet and the breakdown by vessel type is also quite significant. So what you've got, you've got in terms of the fleet composition, you've got about 110 very large crude carriers. They are comprising about half of all of the dark fleet. You have Suezmax tankers, Aframax tankers and, and long-range one and lower vessels. They occupy a smaller part. But we also find that um, 45% of the ships are flagged with Panama. But there's also the evolution of these private registries for which they're almost exclusively focused on dark shipping and in particular Cameroon, uh, Palau and St. Kitts and Nevis, all privately run and for whom class, insurance and the regulatory and technical oversight is somewhat uncertain and unknown.
0: To be absolutely clear here, we are not necessarily talking about illegal activity, and in some cases we're not even talking about sanctions evasion. Because to keep global supply flowing while limiting Russia's revenues, the EU has allowed its shippers, insurers and banks to continue facilitating Russian exports to other countries as long as the oil, and this is crucial, is sold below a price set by the G7 group of big economies. But most countries outside of the West have not introduced their own sanctions, and that has allowed the rise of an army of shady middlemen beyond the reach of Western measures. The UAE, the United Arab Emirates, has emerged as the top facilitator of Russian oil trading, but we also know, thanks to a Loy's List investigation using Lloyd's List intelligence data, that some 28 percent of vessels in the dark fleet shipping sanctioned oil are linked to shell companies in hong kong or china this represents a significant evolution in the sanctions dodging that we had become accustomed to tracking from the likes of iran or venezuela
1: well i think when we when we come to the to venezuela and iran we have lots of sanctions evasion activities with russia there are shades of grey, and it's more sanctioned circumvention. So the structures are in place to obfuscate ownership, even though technically, you know, the the, the companies behind or the the owners behind those um, entities may not be undertaking anything unlawfully, but the structure still is very, very opaque. It's sort of like finding regulatory rabbit holes to jump down. For example, um, 17% of the ISM and technical management is undertaken by single ship companies in India. 12% are single ship companies um, that are the United Arab Emirates. And of course, we already know the nexus between Russian oil trading and the UAE because government-controlled Sovconflot, um, a ship owner with about 60, 70 tankers, re-domiciled to the UAE from Cyprus um, ahead of the sanctions coming. So we have registered owners in the Seychelles, Belize, British Virgin Islands, Suriname, Moldova, places where Corporate structures and brass plate addresses are commonplace and there are some ship owners, Gatic Ship Management is the big one, of course, that have developed from scratch a fleet of some 60 vessels worth over a billion dollars in less than 14 months, all solely deployed in shipping Russian oil. So what sanctions have done is put the the dark shipping templates from Iran and Venezuela on steroids and driven underground 10% of the global fleet.
0: Which, of course, is pretty significant in terms of shifting trade lanes and the opaque nature of what is actually happening. But, of course, the bigger concern with shipping is that if you remove those vessels that were perhaps not the best ships to start with from mainstream oversight and scrutiny, the likelihood of serious accidents increases significantly.
1: Well, there's there there's just so much that can go wrong with these ships. They're an accident waiting to happen. And there's just, when I'm doing all these checks and I look at um, false flags, they can be, you know, I have one tanker, a very large crude carrier, which can take two million barrels. Um, falsely claimed to be flagged in Cormoros, it's not. Um, falsely claiming that it's classed by overseas marine certification services. I've checked with them, and it's not. And it's happily sailing around the world. Most recently, it called in the Philippines on March 4, presumably to change crew. The scrutiny and the oversight is not being provided. It's just incredible what I'm finding out. And these vessels, because they don't necessarily call at ports, and they do, they take on a lot of their cargoes via ship to ship transfers in international waters. Port state control isn't getting a chance to inspect those vessels. If or when some of them do call at a port, it's typically China. And of course, China is the destination for the majority, if not, you know, 80, 90% of this sanctioned Venezuelan, Russian oil, and sorry, Iranian oil, and also. Um, a lot of the Russian oil. So these tankers, if they call in China, there's no regulatory imperative to inspect them, despite the fact that there may be substandard or safety issues that have arisen because of the tanker's age, or the fact that it's not being, I mean, it's at the end of its natural life. There are massive premiums and profits to be made. So this is just like the equivalent of somebody getting an old banger and sort of flogging it as much as they can to squeeze the most money out of it before it gets scrapped. And this is what one of the big concerns should be for global shipping worldwide.
0: And of course, how this evolves is really going to come down now, I think, to how it is enforced. We're on our 10th round of EU sanctions. And the last round was really just to try and close loopholes in the existing previous nine rounds we haven't really seen a huge amount of enforcement from either the EU or the US yet
1: well technically there's nothing to enforce because these ships are now completely out of the scrutiny of of western governments they can't be the only bit of oversight and pressure there is is on the marshall islands and panama and liberia particularly liberia and the marshall islands because the private Companies that run those registries on behalf of the government are incorporated in the US. Panama flags 45% of the fleet. So if there is going to be any pressure placed anywhere, it would be on those registries. But of course, the flags aren't able to police the fleet. They're not policemen. So even if they do, even if um, governments do attempt to, to close off that loophole there, so called quote unquote loophole. It's not going to work. So you've got ships that operate completely um, outside Western control, companies and structures that don't have any involvement. Neither are they involved in the financial system. So the sanctions have, as I said, they've just created this second tier of shipping that they can't police. And again, it's an accident waiting to happen.
0: That question of enforcement is key because while the market implications of the war will have and will continue to have seismic consequences for the industry, the lasting impact of this period of volatility is likely to be increased complexity for shipping. Now, one of the industry's leading experts on how to navigate the increasingly Byzantine compliance landscape that's set out before a pretty mystified maritime sector is Daniel Martin. A partner and sanction specialist at the law firm HFW.
2: I think what it's created, Richard, is a series of, of overlapping restrictions which make life very difficult for any operator in the shipping sphere, whether they're looking to fix in tonnage or whether they're considering buying or selling vessels, because we have an unprecedented number of sanctioned individuals and entities. We have significant challenges in a way that we haven't really seen before in penetrating corporate structures to identify those who sit behind um, some of the, the counterparties that people will be dealing with. And we also have restrictions on the cargo itself, both in terms of imports and exports from Russia, which go further in terms of the breadth of cargoes that are being targeted but also we're deeper in terms of the complexity whether we think about issues like the oil price cap and that requirement there for, for owners to concern themselves with commercial transactions relating to the cargo that previously they wouldn't have had to concern themselves with. Um, and then I think the the third element that creates a challenge as well is that these are of course the, the first set of sanctions whether we going back to 2014 against it, such a significant world player. Um, Security Council member, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore, whereas certainly to to start with, um, we were in a position where it was extremely difficult to to decide simply to stop trading to and from Russia purely because of the size of the market. Whereas in the past, some might have made the decision whether it was around Ivory Coast or Libya or Syria, North Korea, that actually the simplest course was to, to simply stop calling at those particular locations.
0: And the complexity of unravelling those links in the chain has proved, well, a little bit too much for some shipping companies. The larger corporates, they've got entire compliance departments dedicated to looking at these issues. They were already looking at the issues in response to Iran, Venezuela and North Korea. But as Daniel points out, Russia has kind of changed the game in some respects. As we've already pointed out, we are now on our 10th package of sanctions from the EU alone – and these are fairly fluid in terms of the interpretation and the clarifications that are coming out on a regular basis, not just from the EU, but from the US and the UK and various other regimes. So how are shipping companies coping? And are some struggling more than others?
2: I think that is fair. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, we, we started doing sanctions work back in 2010, and I remember talking to, to one of the p i clubs even back then, And they were talking about the changes that we see in the compliance burden that is on ship owners and operators. And I think this is consistent with a broader package and a broader theme that the the amount of compliance and the challenge and the complexity has only increased over time. And I think you're right. I think where we've ended up is that you have um, larger organizations which are in a position where they can resource, manage, maintain, train uh, an in-house team. And who will manage these risks. Um, there are a significant number of clients who are coming to us for that sort of help and support, whether it's in terms of reviewing particular voyages or putting together policies or training their people. Um, but you are right, there will be plenty of others for whom the, the complexity or indeed the consequences if they get it wrong, mean that actually the, 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 the benefit of continuing to trade or the value in continuing to trade um, with Russia it quickly begins to to be outweighed by the cost or the risk or the reputational issues, um, and therefore there are no doubt some who are choosing to to self sanction um, and to prefer not to engage in any trade whatsoever, purely because it's it's so complex and so challenging.
0: Lawyers, of course, don't tend to like getting their crystal balls out and start thinking about what may or may not happen in the future. Based on the evidence of the last few years, it does rather suggest that things are only increasing in complexity. The genie is very much out of the bottle when it comes to enhanced risk and compliance for shipping, and there is very little chance of it going back in whichever direction the war
2: eventually takes. I think you're right. I think, is this the new normal? Um, I think I think it is. And I think, you know, without sort of getting too far into the politics of it, I think these sorts of restrictions um, are currently a preferred option of politicians, and therefore, I think whether we consider the specific situation of Russia and, as you say, what happens on the ground and how things develop, and who knows how long um, the situation will contain and, and minds far far brighter than mine will be able to comment on that. But I think what we certainly have got to, uh, and we're already beginning to, to deal with questions like this, is really If there were to be a situation somewhere else in the world, I think we're probably at the point now where we would anticipate that sanctions would be the first response to any situation, and therefore organisations which in the past have perhaps been able to say, "Well, we don't need to worry about this too much because we don't trade to the jurisdictions that have been targeted in the past," and they now find themselves in a point where I think they need to understand these restrictions, even if they're not trading to a currently sanctioned country, um, because we will. We will see more of this. I think the other thing as well that has changed is I think we have a combination of hugely complex measures, which, as you said, are changing rapidly over time and guidance is difficult to to understand and and manage, but also significant public support for enforcement and for the measures to be seen to be effective. Um, And therefore, I think the other thing that organisations need to be thinking about is how do they prepare themselves for that climate in which not only do we see restrictions imposed rapidly, but we see enforcement agencies either tasked with or under pressure to uh, enforce more, more strictly.
0: Ironically, the rise of the dark fleet and subterfuge activity at the bottom of the industry has effectively forced greater requirements of transparency for everybody else. In order to be compliant, it is incumbent on the individual owners to be able to navigate their way through a minefield of KYC and due diligence that simply wouldn't have existed a few years ago, at least not in the forensic detail or quite so widely. Where top-tier banks and insurers have led the way, now everybody else is required to follow as a basic license to operate.
2: I think think that is right. I think increasingly what we see are banks, insurers, counterparties uh, expecting to see information that perhaps in the past they wouldn't have asked for. We are seeing the growth in vessel tracking, um, whether it's through um, the various products on the market, and that the review of that data so i think you have probably three drivers pulling in the same direction you have the the increased complexity and challenges you have a recognition i think on the part of the industry um that some of the practices that were followed in the past are no longer suitable for the world we live in today and you have the growth in big data and therefore you have more information being collected and more Ability to, to analyze and understand and manip- manipulate that data, um, and therefore I think you're right. You end up with a stratified market where you have some who are very consciously and deliberately um, being being more transparent and sharing information they wouldn't have shared in the past, um, and, and others who perhaps are are taking a different approach. If you are expecting to operate at the sort of top tier of the industry, um, then there is that pressure coming from all directions um, to to be transparent, but I, I'm not sure. And part of the reason why I pause is I think it is not purely being driven by sanctions developments. I think you know if we if we reflect on the past ten years and we think back to UK Bribery Act in 2011, um, issues around modern slavery, um, increasing focus on ESG, um, transparency around emissions, all of these sorts of, of points. I think the the sanctions piece is one part of that um but i think as you say um the the onus on organizations and the um the levels of um expectation on owners and operators to have that information to hand and to be able to share it but but i think also the the expectation on organizations that they will be in a position to respond promptly to requests from regulators and counterparties for clarificatory information has also increased. Um, so certainly clients that we would work with, we would talk to them about the fact that doing due diligence and KYC checking and voyage checking and vessel tracking is important really for two reasons. There is the immediate need to ensure that we are not doing anything we shouldn't be doing. But there's also... I think, a a tendency, and I I don't want to blame particular sectors or or entities, but an expectation that information will be shared, then it will be available, and sometimes an expectation that you can start by stopping the provision of services and then request the explanation in order to reinstate those. So whether it's a bank that is nervous about processing payments and will put a block on payments until they get the answer that they require, or whether it's coming from insurers or others, it doesn't really matter. But I think in terms of preparedness, I think owners and operators need to understand that they, they do operate in an environment now where there's an expectation that they will have that data available, even if they haven't done anything they shouldn't be doing, so that they can reassure others of that position. Um, and I think we've seen it, particularly in the historic sanction side, where we've seen the scope for historic activity relating to a vessel or relating to a particular operator to then take a period of time to track through regulators and enforcement agencies and to then, as a result of that timing gap, then have an impact on future users of that vessel. So if we imagine a scenario in which we've got a vessel that was engaged in sanctionable conduct, it's going to take a period of time for that vessel to be identified and listed if that's what happens and by the time that vessel comes to be listed there is a significant risk that other um, operators will be using the vessel there'll be cargo on board maybe discharging these sorts of points so I think having seen that play through and um, that's another reason why people are, are asking for more information is because they want to to guard against the risk that future use of a vessel or future engagement with a particular entity might be negatively impacted by by things that have perhaps happened you know, years or months in the past.
0: The implications for shipping, of course, stretch well beyond the sanctions and compliance issues we've just been covering. And if you'd like to hear more, there are several other episodes of this podcast looking at the market's impact, the effect the war has had on crew, the consequences for Ukraine seaborne trade, and a deep dive into the insurance implications of the war. You can find these episodes by following the links on lloydslist.com. Thank you for listening.